Hello and welcome to the Applied Innovations Podcast. I am your host, Raphael, and this is your source for manufacturing insights, best practices, and technology. In this episode, we are talking about additive manufacturing, known outside of the industry as metal 3D printing. If you are new to this technology or even an expert, this episode has something for you. I talked to John Loretto, a Renishaw applications engineer and manufacturing expert. He's been in the field around 10 years, and we covered a lot of ground in this conversation. Everything from advanced topics like build speeds and multiple lasers being used to build a part, to the more simple basic ideas of how it even works. How do you use advanced software and hardware to build metal parts out of metal powder? We even briefly touched on the business side of additive manufacturing. It turns out not all manufacturers are an ideal candidate for this kind of technology. So we looked at how a manufacturer might benefit the most out of using a technology like this. I want to thank Renishaw for lending John to us for this packed episode and also for sponsoring the show. For additional information and videos on any equipment we cover today, go to renishaw.com or click on the links in the show notes. And now, here is my conversation with applications engineer and additive manufacturing expert, John Loretto. And John, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Roth. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, it's great to have you. Actually, I was excited to have you on because you're going to be talking to us about something kind of new, a new technology that's being used in manufacturing. Although, by your standards, I'm not sure if it's even new anymore. Commonly, this kind of technology is known as a metal 3D printing out there in the world, but in the industry, it's known as additive manufacturing. Could you give us a breakdown of what that means? What is additive manufacturing? The common nomenclature, as you had alluded to, it is additive manufacturing, which encompasses the entire manufacturing process chain from, again, the source spec qualification of the powder to the printing of the manufacturing component that you're looking at, all the way down to the end process, right, which is like the post-secondary machine tool metrology side of the process, uh, post-secondary metrology. So specific to the, the you know, the Renishaw scope, we, we make and manufacture a laser powder bed fusion technology. Um, functionally, what that means is that we have a, an elevator platent, okay? Um, so our elevator platent is 250 by 250 millimeters in X and Y, and that elevator platen will dispense downwards or progress down in the Z direction up to 350 millimeters. So what that means is we have a volume in which we can uh, load uh, metal powder into, and we can melt that metal powder layer by layer. So to, to do that, it's, it's a layer-based process. So we'll have a small layer of powder, typically in 30 to 90 microns in layer thickness, will be deposited onto that build elevator I had alluded to prior. Uh, the layer is deposited, and then a laser will penetrate down to the the powder metal layer um, from up above in the optical control bank and melt a two-dimensional array of some geometry that you're trying to manufacture. So imagine if you're trying to print a cube, right? Break that cube up into a bunch of 30 micron layer thicknesses, little slices, and then layer by layer, we can use the machine to deposit a new layer of powder every 30 microns. And every time that new layer is deposited, we can leverage the laser to melt that same two-dimensional pattern every time. And eventually over time, what ends up happening is you agglomerate that material or solidify it enough such that you actually end up growing um, a component geometry out of the powder metal. So the, a lot of the processes that we talk about will be based on that fundamental principle of 
layer-based manufacturing of powder metal with a laser gluing it together, so to speak. So you're basically describing the machine and how it works. Um, essentially, you drop the metal from the top, it lands into this build envelope, just a little area inside of the machine, the, the easy bake oven part of it. Mm-hmm. And that is where a laser will just shoot down. Instead of the light bulb like the easy bake oven, you'll have the laser come down and essentially draw up the part slowly building as the bottom goes down you add more powder and then it builds up is that pretty much it exactly right so the lasers stay focused on the exact same layer every time and then the elevator the build area you alluded to drops down slowly right so over time it isn't growing the geometry correct i'll add a a link to a video just to kind of break that down because it it is hard to draw with words <laughs> this amazingly yeah, yeah. complex uh, process, but you definitely have some uh, really hands-on experience too, because you you handle a lot of the general work for additive. Also, is that right? Yeah, I've been, you know, my career path has been quite fortunate to be honest. You know, so I've been able to work in some places where you know I've had my hands dirty, sieving powder, moving powder, changing up builds, loading build plates, machining, that kind of thing. Um, and now all the way up into like the operational level, managing part numbers of build plates and machine platforms and ancillary equipment for the machine. So right now I'm kind of touching all aspects of the technology. What you're doing is you're building this part with lasers, very high powered lasers melting. So how is it that you can make a part by melting things? I'm assuming all the melting is not happening at the same time, right? Correct. Yep. So uh, on the, the, on the sheet of paper that we had alluded to prior on the powder bed on a very localized basis, addressing said area with uh, the high intensity laser beam. And we will raster um, that high intensity laser beam across the surface to draw um, some geometry, right? So that could be any 2D surface, basically, okay? It looks just like a laser etching machine. You know, there's lots of ways you can kind of think about it. And then um, from that juncture, we melt the material to its full capacity, okay? So there's a balance of how much incident energy will program into the melt pool via the laser parameters. So we have things like laser power, hash distance, point distance, exposure time, layer thickness, are a lot of things that we can leverage to control the melt pool integrity as we manufacture the components. So there's a fine balance between uh, those process metrics, things like gas flow, build plate temperature, et cetera, right, that, uh, you know, come in full scope into the technology. Um, different materials obviously have different melting points. What I typically tell people is that melting is the easy part of laser powder bed fusion because the laser has enough intensity to melt many materials for that matter, even outside of some of the metal systems. But getting it to agglomerate and solidify back together is really the more complicated part of the process. So just making sure that everything becomes metal after it being a liquid, essentially, that's that's the hard part. And it sounds like it would be a little bit tricky, but how do you keep it consistent? Right. So metallurgical integrity is very, very important. So the the machine platforms themselves nowadays are quite advanced relative to what they can do to control things that would degradate um, the manufacturing process, right? So much like any manufacturing process, there's things that we need to be cognizant of to control. You know, it goes back to the Renishaw process pyramid. There's things on the machine level that we need to understand and make sure that when we tell the laser or machine platform to do something, it does what we ask it to do. So that's, that's step one, whether it's, you know, a laser power profile, a scan field calibration for where the laser is going to move on the bed, a focal adjustment of the beam, or even a beam profile to see what the roundness of the beam is. There's lots of things we can do on the upfront to make sure the machine 
on the one-to-one -one basis is doing exactly what the operator is telling it to do. As you move a step further into the process, you're doing into the more in-process trilogy, if you will, right? So a lot of times, historically, we'll validate in-process metallurgical integrity and or metrology based upon post-process empirical data that we'll generate. So for example, for tensile yield elongation fatigue are some properties, physical properties of the material that are very, very commonly leveraged to quantify the capability of the platform to manufacture said alloy you know, in, a, in an efficient manner. Obviously, in conjunction with the empirical data and the mechanical properties, you'll see a lot of work done on the metrology side for measurement of the component to make sure you're gauging correctly and your parts coming out to the correct size, shape, dimension function that you would be expecting it to do. So it's a lot of data analytics. It's a lot of capturing process data off of the machine platform. And it's a lot of lab work in some circumstances as well. Obviously, this is all done by with software that's built into the machine. Do you have to buy it? Like separately, does it come just built into it? Yeah, so the machine platform itself will obviously have an HMI, um, which has a software that's built into it, right, which allows us to control things. For example, one of the primary and one of the most important things of the additive manufacturing process specific to laser powder bed diffusion is gas flow. So as the laser is processing or melting metal, typically there'll be, because a beam will have inertia as it incidents the powder bed, You'll have typically an injection of metal particulate up into the atmosphere, if you will, of the build chamber. Um, in some cases, you can also get condensation or condensate of the metal vapors during uh, the manufacturing process. So you'll appreciate that if you get a dust plume, if you will, above the melt pool, you're going to degradate the laser's ability to weld the material if there's things in its way in brief. So typically, we have an argon gas flow that's progressing across the powder bed to help evacuate the spatter and condensate from getting inoculated or blocking or getting included into the melt pool. So there's things like that on the machine side that are very important to us, obviously. And then obviously there's the, the build setup side because there's a lot of things the application engineers can do on the upfront to ensure that they can preliminarily mitigate the degradation to the weld pool from a build setup perspective. So that includes things like parameters, layout, layer thickness, uh, ge geometric Z-height perspectives, you know, can become important as well. At Renishaw, we leverage a, quanta, a utility called Quantum, Quantum, which allows us to do our build preparation. So we can define laser parameters, we can define orientation of the part, the layout, and everything we need to do with laser-based multi-laser assignment stuff in that entity as well. And that's, you know, that's a whole other gambit of stuff, really, it's the multi-laser side of the business. I've seen the machines in action and it looks like there's a lot going on. There's a laser's just melting this entire path on this level powdery bed. So I guess what I'm curious about is if you're keeping everything consistent, the software is doing what it's supposed to do. You do your part in the beginning to keep things, uh, I guess, calibrated would be the best word for it, I guess. How plug and play is something like this? So typically once, it kind of depends on upon the application area. So generally speaking on a, there's a, I guess I'll split up into two different avenues. So in a full scale production perspective, right, where productivity and repeatability of the process is, is uh, you know, the claim to fame, if you will. So at that juncture, the end user will have the opportunity to manufacture, a, you know, a single build file. You know, Renishaw calls them MTTs. Once an MTT is finalized, functionally, that's the end of the road for the scan path and laser parameters. That is what the machine will do at any given time. There's not typically a necessity to validate the build file itself from the perspective of 
is it the same every time I load it into the machine chamber? What the end user is going to be more or less concerned about is that is the, as we had alluded to prior in the conversation, is the integrity of the components of manufacturing after thousands of builds, hundreds of builds, whatever you want to use as a number, is it the same as the first one? So that's where things like you know the empirical data you collect post-mortem the build, <laughs> if you will, or any of the you know in situ process metrology data that you can collect um, will be valuable from a gauge R&R perspective and or just from a 1D array of data perspective. So there's a couple of utilities we can leverage to do that work. So in brief, you know, there's something called um, Infinium Central. So Central in itself is a, a server um, that will pull specific sensor data off the machine platform and progress that into some form of a log report. So this includes things like process oxygen temperature, gas flow powder recirculation rates, differential pressure across your safe change filters, which is where all that spatter and condensate gets collected through the gas flow we talked about prior. All that type of information is presented there, and that's great because obviously, as you appreciate, um, melt, melting metals, you know, higher temperatures lead to greater driving force, which can, which lead into greater affinity, if you will, for oxygen content. So for some materials, for example, oxygen content can significantly mitigate or degradate potentially, depending on your perspective, uh, mechanical properties of the material. So titanium, for example, is in the sense that, you know, oxygen into the melt pool will increase the oxide content in the microstructure, and it actually increases the tensile strength of the material that leads to other degradations, like therefore now it has higher tensile, tensile strength. Typically the material is gonna be more brittle or le less ductile rather. So it's actually funny that if you actually get, if you look at some standard specifications, if you get your oxygen content in the weld pool process chamber to be low enough, your mechanical properties will actually be too low because your chamber process is too clean as opposed to some of the older technology that even anyone has manufactured you know, 10 years ago laser powder bed fusion stuff, it wasn't able to maintain low atmospheric conditions relative to the oxygen content, and your tensile properties would actually be higher back in the day. So a lot of times there's funny things where the specifications of yesteryear are kind of not matching up with what the technology can do nowadays. So that's just kind of a funny aside in that the, the process is too clean, <laughs> so to speak, right? Um, but that's fine. So that's kind of the 1D stuff, the sensor data stuff. Then um, we also have utilities called um, Infinium Central, so, excuse me, uh, Infinium Spectral. Uh, so Spectral is our in-situ process metrology data relative to what is happening at the weld pool interface and what is happening at the incident excitation of the laser prior to entering into the optical control bank where the mirrors will drive the laser down into the build bed. So that's important from a couple of perspectives, right, in that we can understand what the laser is doing at any given time at any 2D spot on the bed, while the set of photodiodes we have that are collecting in-situ process information off the melt pool itself are telling us what type of excitation am I getting at the weld pool interface, right? So typically these are basically just based on two different wavelengths, okay? So the laser itself will excite the metal with a wavelength about 1070 nanometer. So we have visibility of the spectrums below and above that 1070 nanometers. So basically that's like a plasma range and that's an IR range. So the two photodiodes in the optical control bank can uh, withdraw and extract information coming from the melt pool at those locations. So that's, that's clever to, to us from a perspective as well because it doesn't necessarily utilize what I'll call a calibrated photodiode in the sense that it tells you temperature of the melt pool. 
but it, what it allows you to do is develop a spectrum, okay, or a, say like a trend line for what type of excitation you would expect to occur at this two-dimensional location, X and Y, and then at what Z height you're at as well. So like we had alluded to in a production sense, if you're doing hundreds of these builds and you have the opportunity to interrogate the data from the photodiodes across multiple builds, you can basically do some gauge RNR, some statistics to identify if this excitation at this location of the melt pool or part geometry is what you expected to occur across all the build sequences. If there's any anomalies, if you will, or a blip in the data that would indicate to you that there's some form of a abnormality. Is there a problem? Uh, not necessarily because we don't know. Like I said before, it's that they're non-calibrated sensors, but it gives you some form of feedback control to understand what is actually happening at that at that weld interface. So all this is just to ensure the quality of the part. C correct. Yep. Yep. It is what it's for. When I, I think most people, when, when you're thinking about something like this, you're, you're thinking, okay, you're building it. And afterwards, yes, you're going to be making a part, depending on what industry you're using, it may or may not matter, correct? So you, if it is an industry that requires an intense amount of verification, you could essentially backtrack. C correct. Yep. So you'll have a, a design history file, if you will, or, or some, you know, there's different industries call it something different, but yeah, typically you'll end up with a, a record of every step of the process that the that part went through to go into uh, an installation basin in a person in an airplane and a mold injection tool. You know that that is all available to you if necessary, right? So that goes full scope. You think about the quality management system you'd have for a regulatory environment, right? That goes from source spec and qualification of your feedstock, your flour, your your powdered metal all the way through how you disseminate different lots of that material into which machine platform, into what serial number of what laser, into what bill plate it was printed on, to what EDM it hit, to what in-process in metrology sensors hit it, you know, and all that data would be collected in one larger architecture that would be, you know, the, you know, the Renishaw Central, if you will. That, that would be the intention of all that. I'm so intense. Like, you have so much detail about what happened to this part. It, it's, is it overdoing it? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't, well, that's the problem. Is it too it's much? Too, when, is, when is too much, right? Yeah. I don't know if we know that as we're an OEM who manufactures the, the powder bed fusion equipment, right? So we talk to anyone from a guy in his garage who wants to make a bespoke bracket for some old Model T that he has. And then we talk to people who are making high intensity rotary components in airplanes. So those are vastly different people. It's fortunate enough in my position is that we get to understand the needs and necessities of all these different types of people. And in brief, you know, the, the technology is slowly being adopted within the manufacturing scope as a functional use case. It's becoming more normal over time. And there are certain entities right now that we're we are, they are concerned about being able to validate that, that part, right, to, to trust it as it gets manufactured. Because, you know, of yesteryear, right, you know, forgings, castings, extrusions, yada, 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 they all, all went through this in some capacity for certain 50 to 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And additive is now just kind of going through that enlightenment phase, if you will, where we try to, as a community, be more confident in that. And that's kind of coming full scope, too, with some of the specification committees, the ASMEs, the ASTMs, et cetera, the, they're starting to produce specifications with customers and OEMs such that customer X can require vendor Y to 
provide part per the specification, everyone's happy, right? Right. And but but to do that, you know, you there is such a thing as too much information, and too much information, if if you're not using it correctly, this leads to ambiguity. Well, I don't know. Do we even need this information? Is this even useful? Because we what you don't want to do is have so much information that you you actually end up stopping adoption of the technology, right? Right. Like you you have to. You know, you hate to say it, but you have to like buy it and try it, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just, yeah, it's, well, I'm going to wait 10 years and hope that someone else figures this out for me. Because at that time, you'll be behind the curve. So people are adopting this technology because they know or have a feeling that in the future, it's going to be leveraged in a higher capacity. They have to keep their head in the game. Otherwise, they're going to fall behind. Mm-hmm. No, I totally understand. So I'm curious, is, is this the kind of technology that had an initial distrust because of that? that you didn't quite want to jump right in like the early adapter for something like this? I think the, the barrier to entry, unfortunately, right now is just the capital costs associated with procuring the technology. And that's only the machine itself, right? There's a lot of health and safety stuff to consider as well. And Mr. Customer, yeah, you can buy this machine for X amount of money. Plus you have to kind of upgrade your facilities to be able to handle titanium powders, for example. Mm-hmm. There's a barrier to market just from a cost perspective. So that's why you see a lot of Initially, there was a couple of bureaus out there who were doing basically prototyping for those companies to initially validate the technology and the applicability of those applications for laser powder bed fusion. That That is, it's slowly growing in the sense of who's adopting the technology. But to your point, I don't think anyone's afraid of procuring the technology and spending the capital costs and burden rates to get the facility, if you will, to where it needs to be, to be safe and efficient. Mm-hmm. But also it's okay, now that we have this, you know, we need to, we as a company, whoever that company is, needs to develop qualification protocols with the vendors, us, Renishaw, to be able to put these parts into into manufacturing. Because really the, the OEMs will be very, very happy the day that people start buying 20 machines at a time, you know, and that, that will happen, I'd argue. Um, it just will take uh, time for consumer confidence to increase. So right? people are starting to really accept the technology overall. Um, where do you see this going? Are we heading towards higher adoption or less adoption? Or are we kind of leveling out at this point? I think we're still on the upward trend. Um, I, I don't see any recession, if you will, in adoption. I mean, obviously, economic trends will drive capital equipment purchases as of, that's with any industry, right? Sure. So you obviously will have you know phenomena that will uh, pause it or slow it down for a brief moment in time. But generally, you know, we're, we're finding that there's, we're getting more and more questions. The customer base is getting more and more educated on what they want to ask about. It increases or forces us to increase our amplitude um, with what we're talking about. And it increases the necessity for the OEMs and the consumers to be talking to each other more readily to, to make sure that everyone can adopt technology. Because I think everyone wants it to grow and there's a driving push for that, a driving force for that. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to cost of manufacturing, right? So all a numbers game at some point, right? The, when you first get into the technology, you know, you can watch that laser go across the bed for hours because this is kind of fascinating to watch, to be honest. But yeah. after looking at it for 10 years, you're like, okay, how fast can this thing actually go? Because my cost per part is out of control with this technology and I have to be able to get it down. So that's where we talk, start talking about like next gen stuff for with all across all different types of things related to additive relative to how we how companies supply and source powder um what is the powder characteristics relative to chemistry morphology size flowability that type of stuff how does that modification and cost of powder 
push over into the machine platform. You know, machine platforms with more lasers and greater layer thickness are going to have a greater volume rate or greater rate of manufacture, mm -hmm. and that will only help to decrease costs. So the technology is rapidly advancing as is, as is such the supply chain to support that stuff, i.e. the feedstock and the post-secondary side of the process. Sure. I mean, if you go out to IMTS nowadays, and, and it's been like this for a long time, you, you can just see the amount of OEMs in general who are, who are in the game manufacturing the laser part of it equipment, but also the post-secondary ancillary equipment to help support, you know, rate of manufacture. So like powder sieving stations, powder suppliers, specialized metrology tools in like gauging or in probe-based measurement that help us to measure these parts readily. Um, you, you can see that stuff growing. So an ecosystem is actually building itself out of this technology at this point. I argue for certain it is, you know, and, and you see it again, you see it in, like I said, IMTS mechanical side of the process with things to move things, right? And you see it in software especially. And yeah, and you definitely see a, a driving push forward to get this into a use case that good for, the, for everyone at the end of the day. And you also see a big push of it in academia as well. And that's really where the base of these new engineers coming out of school are, are going to be more educated on how to, say, design for laser powder bed fusion. To be fair, if you go to any mechanical engineering class, I'm sure there's an entry-level 101 class. And somewhere in that book, it talks about additive manufacturing. It's probably going to talk about FDM or SLA processes, which have been, which are more plastic based, which have been around for a very long time, if you go back in architecture, but it doesn't probably, the book doesn't go into a lot of detail as it would have having like an entire chapter on casting, for example, or an entire chapter on extrusion. I'm sure it's a subset of an appendix in the back. It's been there for a long time, right? Like right. It, because it's been around, but the scholastic amplitude is there obviously, but the appetite for people needing to recruit people who have those skill sets. You're starting to see a lot of schools nowadays have degree programs associated with additive or certifications associated with additive. And that's not a bad thing at all. You know, a more educated, you know, community, if you will, is not, is not a bad thing whatsoever. Right. They're going to eventually take over and have that knowledge base when they go out into the workforce. So there's an advantage there. Exactly. And like a little funny anecdote, I look forward to the day when I'm at a trade show that's focused on additive and I don't get approached by someone to ask me what colors can we print in. Well, I always say 50 shades of gray, you know, but, <laughs> right. So, and, and in time it's funny now, but that's also tells you what that means is that first time adopters, people who are interested in, te in the technology are coming to these shows to learn more. There are people who are looking at it and it goes from entry level guys in the garage all the way up to, like I said earlier, the big boys in the world, the big corporations. You mentioned earlier, there's a, a lot of processes that fall into creating a part. Everything, again, the calibration, the software, all of that. I'm curious if the most annoying question you get at some of these trade shows is, how fast is it? Yeah, you, you hear how fast is it? And people want to have a, the, the common nomenclature you'll see like in our brochure for a machine platform is volume rate. So I think if you look at the Renishaw Quad platform, the data sheet will say it has a volume rate of 150 cubic meters an hour or centimeters an hour. And, th and that's fine. But the, this is where the whole education side comes into play, right? And I think most people get it, right? But we still seem to have to explain it a lot in the sense of that any volume rate number will be very, very dependent upon the laser parameters being leveraged on the machine platform in conjunction with layer thickness and material 
Um, so it's always one of those things like the classic thing we talk about in AM all the time, unfortunately, is it, it depends. It's like a running joke that we have to say that all the time right. because it, it's, it's true. It's true. It always depends on something. How fast does it go? Well, it depends on you're going to do 316, 17.4. It's going to be different. If you're going to do big mold tool insert with all four lasers, it'll go this fast. But if you have a small thin thing that's going to overheat with all four lasers, it's going to go this fast. I mean, those conversations get pretty in-depth and interesting because everyone has a unique thing that they're trying to do with the technology. So it's always a conversation, which is you know why it's interesting. I think, I think why people really like to be attracted to the the technology. There's always something different going on right now. I can understand the appeal, but I guess from a business standpoint, I, I, that really becomes the more difficult choice to make. I guess that kind of falls in line with the whole idea of speed and is it worth it? So when I hear you talk about these machines, I, you mentioned multiple lasers. I would assume that having more lasers would make it faster. Is it something as simple as that? I know everything depends, but in this case, does that help? Correct. So lasers, the general rule of thumb that I always talk about, right, is that lasers will help you go significantly faster two-dimensionally, right? And, I, and I, what I mean is that, that we can talk about rates of manufacturing a couple of different perspectives, right? So particularly to additive, the growth of the part is driven two dimensions in the sense of X and Y axes. So if, say if the build plate is 250 by 250 millimeters, so it's a square, right? And then we have to progress to build the part in Z, so upwards. Z height relative to the number of lasers matters relative to things like layer thickness. More lasers doesn't necessarily help you build thicker, but what it'll help you do if the lasers are more powerful, i.e. say like 1,000 or 2,000 watts, uh, kilowatt systems, or sorry, <laughs> 1,000 to 2,000 watts, so one to two kilowatts of power. More incident energy will help you build in la larger layer thicknesses, okay? But relative to the volume of lasers you have in the system, those really only help you in like two dimensions, X and Y. Two lasers on the same spot won't necessarily allow you to go to triple the layer thickness you would with a single laser system, for example. So what I tell people is that on, say, like a quad-based system, you know, the system is going to scream and rip and roar and be awesome relative to its production efficiency on those large surface area components where Z height is not very tall. Uh, in the sense of like, say, for example, like acetabular cups um, with like trabecular meshes for osteo, osteo integration for like medical guys. So those things are like what, approximately like 50 millimeters tall at a maximum, but we can stack the build plate and compact those very, very tightly on that surface area. So four lasers across a very dense surface area are very, very fast. Where if we had a tall, thin component that was only 10 millimeters in diameter, but it was 350 millimeters tall, four lasers really won't help us that much on a time scale basis. You could plot that out and see the trend line variation very easily. So generally speaking, the simple answer is like, yes, four, four lasers are going to be faster than one, period. How you leverage them and how you optimize your uh, laser parameters and assignment of those lasers is really going to drive, you know, your production efficiency. So it, it really just depends on how good you are at crafting the, I guess, the part and getting everything made correctly with the software? Is that more or less? Exactly right. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not trying to say that like a single laser is going to be faster than four lasers on the same surface area. That just mathematically doesn't, doesn't work, right? But you have to consider the entire manufacturing process chain in the sense of can the material be acceptable to four lasers on the geometry? Can the geometry even take that much heat input, right? 
So like classically, like in developmental protocols, which we can leverage within quantum, our build preparation software. So what ends up happening with that is that a typical developmental scheme for a new alloy system or new laser parameters of different layer thicknesses or velocity, scan velocities, whatever you have, we're going to manufacture a 10 by 10 cube, okay, millimeter cube. So a small little cube that we can leverage for you know, our community's density checks, we can do optical microscopy with it, et cetera, right? So it gives us our baseline properties of the, of the alloy system. However, if you consider when you're going to put that manufacturing process into full scope, no one's printing 10 by 10 by 10 cubes to sell stuff with. And then they're going to buy bar stock and cut it, cut up the pieces they need. They're not going to use that to make squares. So by consequence, so what we have to be careful of is that you can develop laser parameters for a single laser assignment strategy on a cube. But then if you try to transfer those same parameters to a multi-laser based system and say, those are going to work just fine on this bigger part, it might not necessarily be true because it depends on the geometry and the material system that you're working in, right? So say like very large tool steel inserts that take up the entire surface area of the bed, all four lasers are going to rock and roll in that regard. That's really what it is about, just kind of trying to find the where and when it's appropriate to leverage four lasers versus one. So it's how you do it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That, that makes a lot of sense. Looking at the parts once they're actually made, once they've been built, um, after hours sometimes of production, uh, are they comparable to casting? Are they consistent, hard, or are they porous? Well, that's, that's classically the, the comparison that gets made, right? The technology is, it's in a tough scope, right? Because it always gets put up against currently embedded technology that's been around for a very long time so like you had said castings it gets talked about a lot you get uh where is it relative to rot properties which is basically like a forging type thing right or how does it relate to even extrusions in some capacity that's more specific to aluminums but uh and, and some other alloy grades but typically it's an aluminum thing but with each of those manufacturing processes you know rot casting or you know a forge type product the there will be critical things about that particular manufacturing process that have become um, adopted or readily known, right? So for example, in castings, it, it's very, very common to expect a casting to have some form of porosity in some location, whether it's shrinkage porosity or some form of an inclusion that got in through the pore, you know, that they did, right? And the industry has been around long enough to understand where you would expect those failure modes to occur and or what is the severity of those and where are those going to cause from a degradation perspective to my end product. So additive itself, you know, relative to a casting, I mean, sure, right? You're, you're going to have, there's a lot of different metallurgical considerations to be considered relative to time temperature profiles of how a part is made in additive versus how it's made in castings. So mm. for example, casting, uh, the solidification of the alloy once it's been poured is, I don't want to call it homogeneous, but it's more uh, what I call uniform in that it's, it's a bunch of hot stuff that you pour into a mold and it slowly cools off and eventually solidifies. Where with additive, you have basically an unfused powder that you're hitting very localized, hitting locally with the laser, locally melting, allowing it to cool, moving a few microns, and then doing the same thing again. So it's successive remelting of previously deposited material and a new melting of new material that hasn't yet been hit by the laser. So if you were to look at metallurgical considerations again, back into laser powder bed fusion relative to how you're going to have microstructural characteristics be changed with those rapid time temperature profiles versus, say, a homogenous cooling of a casting process. 
they're going to be significantly different relative to, to properties. So typically, let's take a casting, for example. Typically, it'll come out in extrusion, even aluminum extrusion. The raw manufactured component will be in what they call like a T4 temper condition, which basically means it requires some form of another heat treatment to get it to its peak properties. In some circumstances with additive, the driving force of the, of the repeated welding, okay, so the repeated melting of the process, can actually do a pseudo form of that heat treatment while it's manufacturing the product. So the say we'll take an alloy grid like ALSI 10MG, for example, it'll typically have higher properties straight out of the machine than say a rock casting would have because of the fact of the metallurgical conditions that it went through. So that's a, that's a unique thing that the industry is trying to get a grasp on as well is what type of considerations need to be made for an additive product versus one that's been traditionally manufactured. So there's always going to be that form of a comparison between the two in some capacity. And as of right now, it's always a competitive game in the sense of like, well, casting has this and forging this and blah, 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 right? So that's fine. And that's just kind of what's going to happen right now. But at the same time, it's a completely different manufacturing process and you would never expect them to behave exactly the same, right? Why, why would they? They're completely different time temperature profiles again. And it, it gets even more complicated in some of the more complex alloy systems, like say like Inconel 718 or Inconel 625 where you have a significant driving force to modify grain growth considerations across the Z height. You get, you know, chemistry modification across the meld pool interface. So you have different phase constituents at different parts of the material. You can even get in situations where certain cross-sectional areas will, so think about it this way, right? Say if you're building like a cone, okay? Um, any, any, any cone. So it's going to have a, at some juncture at the top or the bottom, it'll have a thin cross-section at the tip of the cone and it'll grow and be quite a bit larger. So imagine that if you're doing that, you're going to be throwing the same laser power energy in that small cross section at the tip of the cone as you would be across a larger surface area. So by consequence, you would expect that the cooling ability of the thin spot will be uh, less than the thick spot because there's nowhere for the heat to go. It's just all in that part in that small surface area and or it gets conducted into the powder bed itself. We're on a larger surface area the heat can conduct away from the melt pool interface because it's a larger surface area that you're exposing and or there's greater amounts of previously deposited material for heat conduction to occur. So the weld pool interface will be colder, quote unquote, you know, at a larger surface area than what like a smaller cross-sectional area. So by consequence, that leads into significant metallurgical change, right? And you'll see that with any process as well, right? Even if a, you know, if you're casting a big, you know, hub or something, and you have this that thin little fin on the side, let alone if you can even get metal to flow to that location, but the cooling rate in the thin section is going to be a lot different than it is in a thick section. And that's true of like, you know, baking, you know, whatever, kitchen stuff, right? You know, it's the same, right. <laughs> same principle of thermodynamics. And I think the industry is just learning what those differences are. So really the, the primary thing that at, at bare minimum, I think what is the responsibility of the OEMs is to provide a parameter set to an end user that works with a very wide operating window. And what I mean is that some material systems can more readily work in a bunch of different power velocity realms. So power velocity, it's like a, think about power on the y-axis and velocity on the x-axis of a curve, right? So what that means is that if the working window is wide, there are a lot of different velocities and a lot of different powers that the laser can be programmed to to weld that material, okay? Where if it was a thin processing area, there wouldn't be a lot of areas in which to process the material. So 
like I had alluded to before, the laser parameters are really going to drive a lot of that, but also is the surface area and the material. So for example, like aluminum will conduct things differently or copper will conduct heat differently than say a steel will, right? So there's a lot of accommodations that need to be made in that regard. And the industry is just learning what those are, right? And, you know, and it's just going to take time. So at a bare minimum, we need to try to provide the largest operating window applicable to an end user to more or less ensure they have a good experience with the platform and to ensure that the product is dense. So dense is a relative term. Uh, generally, it tries to be at a minimum 99.5. And I can talk about that for a long time. But basically, that's like, if it's less than that, it can lead into other problems, I, I guess is what I'll say. So you mentioned forging and casting now. Obviously, these are technologies that have been around for a while, very familiar uh, with the manufacturing process and things like that. So why even try metal 3D printing? Why do additive at all if you have these well-known and um, I guess we can depend on them at this point since it's been some of them thousands of years, right? So why try something new like metal 3D printing? So functionally right now, you know, metal additive enables an end user to leverage certain design criterion or geometries, if you will, that will enable different types of, um, you know, design allowables, right? It enables certain things that certain types of technologies cannot offer to, to the marketplace itself. So if you look at some of these component geometries that people are manufacturing, it's, they're very unique, they're very bespoke, and they can't be manufactured for standard machine tool applications, if you will, or castings or forgings or for, for a multitude of reasons, right? But also has the ability, you know, as a manufacturing process to increase the performance of certain material conditions and or designs. And that's why people are trying to adopt it, because they think it's going to be enabling certain things moving forward in the future. And I think over time, after design allowables are met and understood and people are really leveraging the, the technology. The next step of the process will be once, because right now we're using a lot of standard alloy grades. So like if you go to like to a tool shop of right now, you know, they're going to want some standard tool steel that they already have. Once that becomes nomenclature to them that they're familiar with, eventually what we'll migrate into is where additive relative to the laser processing techniques will enable specific material types to only be allowable to be manufactured in additive manufacturing and thereby have metallurgical considerations that are very unique to additive and that you'll have to use that technology to get X properties. So that gets into some more bespoke, you know, specific metallurgical powders that are manufactured specifically for a laser powder bed. Because right now, like laser powder bed materials are, there are cut of the manufacturing process that's typically leveraged for standard PM work, classic green body sintering stuff, right? And additive just takes a small subset of that and puts it into the machines. So that's all the, you know, the D, the D50 of like 32 micron stuff. So really that's in short, additive right now enables designs that weren't possible with standard traditional manufacturing methods. And in time, it will likely enable certain metallurgical properties that are unobtainable and any other consideration, right? It's kind of like, you know, when the aerospace industry first kind of more or less figured out how to do like single crystal turbine blades, which is a pretty awesome process to see in person, but that's unique to that casting process. You're not going to forge a single crystal, for example. So I think in time, you're going to be able to see things like that come onto additive, which would be super awesome to 
have that happen. So in terms of parts, what would be an example of something that you could build with additive that you absolutely could not do with some of the more traditional ways of doing things? Oh, geez. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity in that, in that question for certain, right? But what, what you typically see is more organic structures are, is the easy one that I'll talk about. Things where traditional square machine paths aren't, aren't applicable. So you see it a lot in, let's think about it from the perspective of a design. It, everything is designed right now to be machined or to have some form of a tooling thing touch it after the process, right? Well, right now we can, with additive, you can mitigate the entire step or necessity for tooling at all. So for example, to make an injection mold tool, you have to buy a pretty big block of steel and then cut out the shape that you want where an additive you can just print the shape that you want you don't need to have to have the bulk billet first that you then cut down to a smaller application so there's things like um, reduced tooling costs there's things like part consolidation where you take this large manufacturing fixture thing and you turn it into a single piece that you manufacture there are situations where you manufactured again like i alluded to prior the more organic structures that wouldn't be possible to print without additive because of the freedom of design, if you will, in the sense that there's no uh, tooling requirements. But again, that gets a bit unique as well, because even additive has its own design minimums and criteriums that we had kind of alluded to prior. I come at it from more of a metallurgical perspective, just because of my background, but we have plenty of colleagues in the, in the business who would be more apt to talk about the design-focused features of the technology that it enables. So there is a chance that this may not even be for you, but it's good to explore it overall. Well, you just want everyone's decision, ourselves included, to be a justified financial proposition that they've made an educated decision on the platform. And I think that's just the technology in general. That's not just like our machine. That's just like in general, we want to make sure the customer is fully apt and ready to understand what they're getting into in both regards, good, the goods and the bads of it. This is why we have a team of application engineers globally. Uh, the question always comes down to what's my build time, right? right? What's my build time on single laser? What's my build time on a quad laser? What's my build time on a whatever layer thickness? We leverage our, our quantum again to, to develop those build time estimates, which are very good time estimates relative to the manufacturing process speed, right? But again, that all comes back full scope to the first question about how much does this cost? So everyone's concerned about build time because that's machine utilization. Um, the machine utilization conversations turn into production efficiency, mean downtime, mean uptime, service rates, all that jazz. That all comes full scope into the conversation with that build time conversation, right? So a lot of times we'll utilize that number to talk about the financial models of the platform, talk about serviceability, talk about practical run rates of it. One thing I always joke about with our RSMs is that a lot of times customers, they'll want a certain manufacturing production efficiency that like a machine tool gives them. And to be fair, I think the machines nowadays, as long as they're maintained correctly, are robust enough to be able to run at a high uh, utilization rate, which is great. But a lot of these guys are, you know, running single shift operations Monday through Friday, but they want 100% efficiency off the platform. It's like, well, you're not even in the building when that's doing that, right? So timing out the production schedule so that you're starting builds and taking out builds during the, the operational day where there can be machine labor, human labor onto the platform. That's where it gets really bespoke into what we're trying to design for people. You know, I don't care if it if it prints that fast, if it, if it ends on Saturday morning, I'm not going to touch it till Monday morning. Like why did it have to go that fast? That, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so that's just like a conversation we always have to have with people too. Any final words for anybody that might want to research additive manufacturing or 
the benefits of something like this? Yeah. So, I mean, for example, in the Renishfeld webpage, there's a place called the AM Guide. Um, you can go there and find a wide variety of white papers, case studies, and resources to learn about the technology and what the offering can be to you as an end user. So, um, as always with that, you'll see on that page a couple of links to some additive experts, which includes myself and some of my other colleagues, Kevin and Lucy Granger. Um, Kevin Brigden and Lucy Granger. Shout out to Kevin and Lucy. Shout out, right? Yeah, and they're and we're here, you know, 24/7, if you will, to respond to emails and questions and inquiries. And we're more than happy to have a conversation with you know anyone who's interested in technology or developing some form of uh, production solution for additive manufacturing. And, and I'll add the link on the show notes also, so people can just check and click it. And if they have questions that are a little more in depth, obviously they can reach out to you. But a lot of the general stuff you can find on the web page. And any higher level conversation needs to be had, just reach out to us and then we'll be more than happy to facilitate that. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Hopefully we'll have you back on sometime soon. I know there's plenty of things to mine out of this particular technology. So I look forward to chatting with you again. Well, no problem, Rob. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. And that was my conversation with additive manufacturing expert, John Loretto. I hope all the information shared with us is of some value to you and your business. Thank you for listening to the show, and be sure to subscribe to the feed to catch the latest episode immediately upon release. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at appliedinnovationspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I am Raphael, and this is the Applied Innovations Podcast.